And so it's all about pushing applications and data closer to the user uh, so that there's um, not the kind of latency that we tend to experience. You can't count on connection. So, it, you know, being close to the user and the point of collection is really important. On this episode of the Defense Scoop podcast, brought to you by Microsoft. The latest on the Pentagon's major cloud acquisition, the joint warfighting cloud capability. And Sharon Woods details the progress DISA's hosting and compute center has made and what comes next. It's Wednesday, December 6, 2023. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast, where you'll hear all about what's going on across the defense technology landscape. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. Pentagon leaders have approved the procurement of three capabilities that were tested under the Rapid Defense Experimentation Reserve, or RADAR, initiative. RADAR is a signature initiative of Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering Heidi Hsu that started about two years ago. It includes a series of technology sprints to identify and experiment with prototypes in order to more rapidly field new systems, close capability gaps, and address warfighting requirements particularly for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Focus areas include resilient communication, joint command and control, contested logistics, and asymmetric capabilities. The procurement of three capabilities was recently greenlit by the Deputies Management Action Group, a key resource decision-making board Shu said at the Reagan National Defense Forum last weekend, though she said she couldn't get into specifics and declined to identify the types of capabilities that were given the go-ahead. And the Army has proposed multiple drones for the Pentagon's Replicator Initiative, and the services acquisition chief thinks the odds are good that at least one of them will get tapped. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks first announced the Replicator effort in August with the stated goal of delivering thousands of relatively low-cost, attributable capabilities in 18 to 24 months to help counter China's military buildup. In December, the Office of the Secretary of Defense is expected to choose from a list of platforms proposed by the services and other DoD components for the initial tranche. Replicator isn't a program of record, but rather an effort to give a boost to technologies that are already in the works so they can be fielded faster in larger quantities than they would otherwise if they weren't given special attention. Specifically, the Army proposed unmanned aerial systems for the initiative, Bush acknowledged. However, he declined to identify the drones, and Hicks has called for secrecy about some aspects of Replicator. You can read more about these stories and much more at DefenseScoop.com. DISA's hosting and compute center was opened in 2021 to empower the warfighter to execute at the speed of mission with cloud computing and other hosting and computing services. Now, two years later, the hack, as it's called, is smashing its strategic goals out of the park while leading the administration of one of the largest and highest profile cloud computing contracts in all of government. Sharon Woods, the director of the hack, joins the Defense Scoop podcast to discuss the latest on the joint warfighting cloud capability, what the center has in store next, and much, much more. Sharon, so good to see you again. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Billy. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk with 
everyone. Well, we've got a lot to discuss today um, in, in what the hack has been doing since it was founded uh, not too long ago. But to start in 2022, you released an action plan for the hack um, to run through 2024. And I'd love to start there to hear about the priorities that you think stand out the most as part of that action plan. And, you know, really what progress you've made so far uh, on that action plan in the time since you launched it. Yeah, so fiscal year 2023 has been an exciting year for us. Because like you said, we made the action plan through fiscal year 24. Uh, we actually completed the items that were in our plan. So one of the things we're in the process of is formulating an updated uh, forward-looking uh, action plan for our, our next round. But in terms of uh, fiscal year 2023, there are three items that I would highlight. The first is that we awarded the joint for fighting cloud capability contract. Uh, that was huge, right? That's something the department has been looking to do for a number of years. Uh, the, the contracts were awarded to Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle, has a $9 billion ceiling, uh, task orders it competed. It includes all classification levels and edge offerings. So that was definitely an exciting uh, accomplishment for us. Uh, and, and I'm happy to say we have over $250 million worth of awards so far. So it's, it's definitely gotten off to a good start. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so one of the other things we've done too is expand our Stratus private cloud capability. We added utility billing, uh, which you know, resulted in some great cost savings for our customers. Uh, it was 13% for our Nipper unclassified customers. And then we're projecting 30% uh, for our classified Zipper customers, which really just lets them reinvest <clears throat> their funding into their mission. Uh, we also uh, were really focused on Oconus cloud deployment, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. So I won't, I won't get into the details there. Um, but the last one is our Vulcan DevSecOps project. Uh, we launched and got authorizations for uh, three different tool sets, uh, Jira, Confluence, and GitLab. Uh, that one has also really gotten off the ground well. Uh, we have almost 5,000 users in our free Git.mil instance, and we're transitioning to a paid service and already have a lot of customers lined up. So some huge successes for us, uh, really exciting. A lot of momentum's been built, and so we're, we're really looking forward to fiscal year 24. Well, those those topics really set us up for a good conversation, and there's definitely a lot to dig into there that I'm I'm, I'm hoping to talk about. But let's start back with JWCC. I don't need you to necessarily, uh, you, you've kind of already done a great uh, job introing that and sort of explaining the work that you've done. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as as the, the Department of Defense looks more into the cloud um, and, and really thinks about JADC2 as part of that and really moving things to the edge, how is JWCC really uh, enabling that? because that seems the, the, the direction that so much of, of the department is moving towards. Yeah, so we definitely have a number of orders that you know, explicitly uh, <clears throat> play into JADC2, uh, which is, you know, that, that was a huge part of the contract was really providing that operational capability. Uh, JWCC offers a full suite of edge offerings uh, for all four vendors. And I would say it, there is no other contract that provides as many edge offerings as JWCC does. My expectation is over the coming year, there will be more and more focus on the edge offerings. Right now, people are starting with unclassified. We have a number of classified task orders. 
you know, like we've discussed, there's there's definitely an emphasis on uh, Chad C2, but I think for the edge offerings, they really fall into two buckets. Uh, one is tactical edge offerings. So those tend to be the, um, the smaller capabilities, form factors that are in those highly disrupted, unpredictable, unpredictable environments where the warfighter operates. And so that's what people tend to think of when they think of tactical edge. And then there are the operational edge capabilities. So not tactical, but definitely OCONUS. And so it's all about pushing applications and data closer to the user uh, so that there's um, not the kind of latency that we tend to experience you can't count on connection. So, it, you know, being close to the user and the point of collection is really important. So I do think over the coming year, we'll see more emphasis on some of the edge offerings. And, you know, you, you continue, continually mention OCONUS, and I think it sounds like that's a big, you know, focus for the hack and DISA. And, you know, it makes sense. A lot of, you know, if you think about moving into battle and operations in in a conflict that's going to happen oconus in in most cases so um tell me more about the the recently launched oconus cloud capability and how that is going and how that capability is being used so far sure so you know we are actually executing two different efforts simultaneously uh, around oconus cloud uh, one is our stratus private cloud capability and we stood up a oconus cloud region out of Hawaii. Uh, so uh, that I think is, is key to provide that on-prem option for some of our customers. Uh, but then we also are launching uh, a commercial cloud edge offering that's called Joint Operational Edge. Uh, that was actually started out of DOD CIO, it transitioned to DISA Hack uh, for execution. And so we have deployed our first instantiation of that operational edge offering that I talked about before, where it's not necessarily tactical in the battlefield, uh, but it is pushing OCONUS closer to the point of collection and the point of need. And based on you know, both of those, we anticipate deploying more OCONUS cloud regions for Stratus, as well as using our current pilot for Joe as a template to then deploy uh, in other regions, as well as more, you know, additional vendors. Uh, so I, I think it's important to have that variability and optionality, and that's something Hack has to provide options to all of our customers, so that they're able to get capability in a variety of ways, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's so interesting because I, I, I think we've talked about this before. The, the hack is not just about the cloud. It's about all infrastructure to support the computing. So I think that variability is interesting uh, to, to keep an eye on. But, you know, I'm curious, obviously, I think there's unique challenges when you think about OCONUS, given the governance of, of, of th the data and things of that nature. But um, can you tell me about, you know, the uniqueness of, of moving into OCONUS and some of, um, you know, how it's different? than perhaps working with cloud here in, in CONUS? Yeah, so, I mean, the huge difference is the location, as you can imagine, right? I mean, we, that's sort of obvious we're talking about that, but it's that transport reliance uh, that, that happens when the capability isn't able to offer, uh, operate disconnected. And so that is one of the distinguishing features of an edge capability. So what you'll see is there'll be an application in the core cloud environment hosted CONUS. 
but then there will be deployments where they're pushing the application and data into the smaller edge form factors. And so there's this synchronization that happens. And in a steady state, that synchronization is, is constant. Um, but then if disconnection does occur, the edge form factor is able to continue operating. It can continue to host the collected data and process that data so that rapid decision-making is still happening in theater. And then when connection is reestablished, it can resynchronize with the core cloud environment. And so it's this multi-layered approach uh, that recognizes that transport is not always available and the technology allows for that disconnected state and then the resynchronization. And it's a really powerful capability when you think about you know, the mission of the Department of Defense. That sounds in incredibly interesting and um, very technical and like a big, um, you know, a complex thing to pull off. So, so kudos on that. Um, I want to go back to Vulcan now because you mentioned it, and I think we followed it to some degree when it was in more of a pilot stage. Um, obviously, that's focused on DevSecOps, um, and I, I understand based on what you said, it's now received ATOs or or some of the tools has received ATOs under under the program. So, what are the next steps for the vision of uh, what you hope Vulcan will become uh, under this is or the Hacks portfolio of offerings? So I think the key emphasis in fiscal year 23 will be building out those pipeline templates. Uh, so we have the tooling right now, but extend it uh, so that you get an even fuller, you know, uh, continuous integration, continuous development experience and the security, and you're able to, in a very highly automated way, build those applications. We've had some great experiences with different customers. Uh, one of them that I would highlight is uh, DFAS. DFAS is the financial and accounting uh, services agency for the department. Um, may sound kind of boring numbers, but everyone gets paid through DFAS, right? All of the contracts and payments get pay, uh, processed through DFAS. So if those aren't processed, things aren't moving and people aren't getting paid. So it's a profound mission. And so they have a financial system that's used by uh, three different Air Force logistics centers in support of deto, uh, depot maintenance activities. And so they have now incorporated the Vulcan DevSecOps tooling, which is enabling them to move quicker. It's enabling and driving innovation and allowing them to accelerate their modern, uh, modernization. So I think these capabilities, um, you know, one of the key tenants is speed. And we can't move quickly enough, right? And I think current events really illustrate that, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. And the mission is dynamic. And by incorporating things like DevSecOps, you can move so much faster with a higher level of quality and a higher level of security. You know, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, to it, it, AI is something that we hear so much about. Um, and I know that it may not be necessarily in, in line with the, the things that Hack is providing and offering. But, you know, with all of the focus on AI of late, I'm, I'm curious, is that a topic that the Hack is turning its attention to in any way as the cloud and other, you know, forms of compute are sort of a foundational layer to, to set that up for success? Absolutely. So we're already using AI because uh, it's embedded in a lot of the security features in cloud offerings. And that's a really powerful tool, uh, as you know. Uh, and we're looking to incorporate 
additional offerings, um, you know, additional capabilities on the back end, right? Where we're deploying communications, we're deploying the data centers, we're gathering so much data about the quality of service, where there are vulnerabilities. And so applying AI is gonna let us move quicker. It's going to improve decision-making. It's going to let us do things with our data that we're not doing right now. So I think our focus on AI is going to be more on the back end of how do we incorporate AI uh, into our administration capabilities so that we're providing an even more robust service. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, so Sharon, we've talked about a lot uh, in this short amount of time, and it seems like you've accomplished a lot. It, it, it sounds like you've overachieved when it came to the strategic planning, getting done with a lot of those things earlier than um, you know you set out to. What comes next? What are, what are some of the the big um, you know goalposts for where you're you're taking the hack uh, next? Yeah, so I think our action plan once we release that, it's going to. Uh, have four key tenets, if you will. Um, the first one is, you know, transforming into the preferred hybrid cloud provider for the warfighter. We've already been on that trajectory. I think it's just honing that even more, especially when you think about Oconus cloud capabilities and, and that increased focus on hybrid cloud, which is really where the department is moving. I think people have recognized that there tends to be a persistent on-prem requirement. Sometimes it's just for backup, uh, and then they have their commercial cloud presence. And so we want to be front and center and being able to support hybrid cloud architectures. The other is establishing a superior customer service experience. I think, you know, an application could be incredibly designed and developed, but if that customer experience is a poor one, it's not going to be successful. And then in addition to that, we are a service provider. And so just customer experience uh, and service holistically is really important. Uh, another tenant uh, is gonna be empowering and posturing the workforce uh, to meet evolving mission demands. And DISA has already kicked off a key initiative. They call it Workforce 2025. Uh, and it is all about that. It's about positioning the workforce so that we're able to operate the most modern capabilities, we're able to operate at speed, and then we have an eye towards the future. So our initiative is really just nested under the larger Workforce 2025 initiative that DISA is leading. And so we'll just have a focus on some of our skill sets and making sure we're investing in our workforce. Uh, and then the last one is transforming our IT operating model uh, to optimize our resources, because if we're efficient, we can take our efficiencies and reinvest those in uh, capability development, solutions delivery, and investing in our workforce. So I think efficiencies around software footprint, hardware footprint, flexibility and labor contracts, that's also gonna be a focus so that you know, we have an enduring operating model that's constantly improving itself. And then, you know, just one more time, when should people expect to see that plan and what are the, the, the sort of, what's the term of that, given that this previous one was 2022 through 24, what's this new one gonna look like in, the, in that regard? I do think it'll be a two-year plan, uh, possibly three years, but I think it'll be a two-year horizon. Um, you know, from my perspective, when you look at action plans, the technology and the mission is so dynamic, it's hard to plan out much further than that. Uh, and it should be released in, in the coming weeks. Uh, if it 
if it's released uh, longer than two months, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> so I think uh, we're going to be shooting for probably four to six weeks. We're just putting the finishing uh, finishing touches on it now. That's great to hear. Well, everybody heard it here first. Uh, Sharon, fantastic talking with you as always. And really thanks uh, for the insights today. It's always great to hear what's going on at The Hack and all the great work you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it. You can learn more about Dis's Hack at DefenseScoop.com. And now I'll pass it over to my colleague, Wyatt Cash, for a conversation with the sponsor of this episode, Microsoft. The Defense Department is moving ahead quickly on the adoption of cloud computing aimed at delivering enterprise cloud capabilities from the continental United States to the tactical edge. That effort is critical in executing the Defense Department's joint all-domain command and control strategy, as DOD Chief Information Officer John Sherman made clear to legislators earlier this year. But getting the right capabilities in the cloud is critical. I'm Wyatt Cash with Scoop News Group, and here to talk about the essential capabilities the DOD needs for mission success is Derek Strasbaugh, Mission Team Leader for the Department of Defense at Microsoft Federal. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. And let's start with a, a kind of a basic question. What questions or issues are you hearing most about deploying a secure classified cloud computing environment from uh, your defense customers compared to, um, you know, the concerns for unclassified cloud consumers it, for DOD? Uh, yeah, thanks, Wyatt. Uh, great, great question. Um, I think they're largely in three areas, the questions that I hear. They, they generally revolve around authorization, access, and then capability. And let me go back and expound upon each of those three. Um, in terms of authorization, what that typically means is which government bodies have authorized what and what types of classified information are supported in which clouds. Uh, there's obviously lots of different pathways between classified programs and in some cases lack of pathways between classified programs and, and, uh, classif and classified information. And so folks are you know, understandably interested and curious about um, can it hold the information from our agency? Has my agency approved this? Is there a higher uh, agency up the food chain that's approved this? And then who else might be using uh, this cloud with uh, with whom I typically collaborate? Um, the second one, like I said, is access. And access is really a little bit of an overloaded term as what it typically means is one, how do I get to it? For example, if I'm a CIPRNET user, can I use your cloud? As well as what other classified networks may or may not be accessible, uh, you know, from our cloud that you know are secret collateral in nature. In the case of uh, like being something like the CIPRNET, or if I'm talking uh, our top secret cloud, what other things may or may not be accessible off of our top secret cloud, uh, which sits natively uh, off of JWIX infrastructure. And then kind of the part B of the access question is, well, how do we protect that cloud that's sitting uh, adjacent to these classified networks? Uh, not only uh, the cloud from those other networks, but those other networks from the cloud, because there is still uh, this um, sort of bicameral uh, work that goes on between uh, the CSPs and the government security community uh, to connect our clouds uh, together. But again, it's it's not an on-prem implementation like a lot of folks that are working in the classified community are used to. And then the, the third one, like I mentioned, was capability. And, and, and I think that's the one that uh, 
probably gets hit on the most. And it really has a lot of implications for migration, ultimately. Um, classified programs are just by their very nature, just used to limitations in terms of getting access to commercial capabilities, or at least getting access to them uh, a lot later than their compatriots, if you will, that operate largely on the unclassified infrastructure or you know, may have jobs in commercial industry. And a, a lot of that's understandable because of the risk posture of these networks and what they protect, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, if I'm going to migrate a classified uh, workload from an on-prem uh, classified implementation to um, a cloud uh, implementation on a secret or a top secret cloud, I don't just want to move that program or that implementation uh, of, of specific app in place and kind of recreate the technical debt or the legacy tech that was used to develop that in the cloud, that doesn't really accomplish uh, the objective in most cases. There's a little bit of a benefit to lift and shift from a sustainment perspective. Hey, now we've got this thing in somebody else's data center. We can stop watching the computers. But at the end of the day, that you know that, that doesn't recognize the full benefit of, of doing a cloud migration in the first place. So having an understanding of what capabilities are there. So if I'm sort of reimagining that business process in the cloud uh, as opposed to in some on-premises data center where, you know, again, we may be operating off of, uh, you know, a legacy technology stack is a, is, a, is a big part of the effort. And, you know, to, to know that I'm working with, you know, maybe commercial capability to get started to understand the art of the possible, that that same set of capabilities is going to be available in a secret or a top secret cloud that's the destination uh, ultimately for my application is, is super, super important. Nobody wants to, you know, uh, build an application on the low side and then migrate it to the high side and figure out they need to maintain a completely different code base, uh, in order to have it operate in the environment that really makes sense. So again, it's, it's really around the, you know, the questions that, that they ask are really around, you know, can I rely on the destination uh, environment for my particular workload being the same as what I see on the web pages when I when I research your your commercial cloud, and is it still secure and um, attached to the environments that I need in order to operate my classified program? And and really the differences that I see customers uh, the different questions I see different customers asking that are. Uh, related to classified workloads as opposed to unclassified workloads. It really is around some of the same subject matter, quite honestly. Uh, it's, uh, you know, what's the security implementation in the cloud? How do I manage my, uh, my crypto? Uh, how do you adhere to this particular policy to house classified information? For example, do I need to get you a D, uh, get a DD-254 to you? Um, and again, who's, who's authorized these things and under what compliance regimes. So, um, the differences are, you know, uh, sl you know, slightly, uh, aligned more to the, the different concerns of classified programs and, and users that are in classified environments all day long, but their technology concerns are relatively similar to the same questions that are asked, uh, when folks are using unclassified cloud. Yeah, absolutely. You make a great point about the perils of lift and shift, which leads me to my next question uh, to really take full advantage of the cloud's capabilities. Talk a little about 
you know, what are the essential characteristics uh, or, or mission essentials that DOD really needs to operate effectively using the cloud? Uh, I think there's four of them, and I'll, I'll just hit them real quick and then, again, go back and kind of go beyond the definition to kind of the ingredients. Uh, I mean, the first is really the, uh, this notion of mission assurance, and then next is uh, the security and, the, and making a mission secure or keeping a mission secure. Uh, the next one is mission continuity, and, and the following uh, and, and last one is mission advantage. So let me, let me go back and dive into each of those uh, separately. So... Mission assurance is, you know, wave tops, very simple to explain. The mission can't stop because of the cloud. So the cloud has to be available. There has to be native connectivity options to classified networks. And frankly, high-speed throughput that enables the mission uh, around the world. And then the cloud has to be reliable. There needs to be dedicated, purpose-built uh appropriately secured geographic uh, redundancy and availability around the world. Because again, the DOD's mission is all around the world. Um, so bottom line is when I need the cloud, I need the cloud to be there and I need the cloud to perform. Mission security and mission and, you know, keeping a mission secure. What this really involves is uh, exactly what it implies. Uh, making sure that the cloud that I'm using for my classified workloads can be trusted so that the, the, cl the cloud itself is secure when I'm internal to the cloud, but how do I bring things into and out of the cloud as well? Uh, that's been an operational hurdle uh, on classified networks for as long as I've certainly been in this space, which is really this challenge around cross-domain and ingress and egress into classified environments and making sure that... Um, you know, data that's supposed to stay in stays in, data that's supposed to stay out stays out, the data is appropriately secured, the data is appropriately marked. Um, and we've got our own cloud native CDS uh, called Azure Data Transfer uh, that we've worked on uh, collaboratively uh, with the IC and DOD. And then ultimately, I think where we really get to is the cloud needs to maintain a high bar and it needs to be capable of protecting our most important national security secrets. And so having secret, top secret clouds and all the various flavors of secret and top secret information, um, that carries a certain level of gravity to it. And uh, being able to support that uh, as well as other uh, compartmented information within those uh, collateral caveats uh, really, really does mean that all of that has to come together as a comprehensive, fully baked solution, not not something added on with an afterthought um, and an ecosystem of tooling. So I really think of the security ecosystem around uh, around these clouds as the most important asset that, frankly, we can bring. Uh, then the third one, as I mentioned, is mission, this mission continuity. Um, the, the DOD doesn't have the option of defining its mission a lot of times. Its mission happens, and it happens in an instant. And so the DOD often operates in environments where that are unplanned uh, and where sometimes the environmentals are challenging from 
a perspective of communications, uh, critical infrastructure, uh, temperature, et cetera. And so the DOD mission is frankly a set of edges um, as well as an enterprise. And so the DOD needs to be able to operate in the cloud with a common control plane for all of these various shapes and sizes of edges and to support a fully hybrid cloud infrastructure to operate the mission. And I think this is where our cloud is a little bit differentiated from others that are out there, in fact, as well. And again, from a, the perspective of migrating workloads in that we thought through the edge in parallel with the hyperscale implementation. And so we have support for a common control plane across them. So in other words, when I'm operating on the edge, I have a set of surfaces out there on the edge that look exactly the same as those that operate in the hyperscale cloud. And I use the same tooling to manage, monitor, deploy, and ultimately secure them as well. And that's where we also offer multi-cloud support because not every uh, program or every mission in DOD utilizes our technology stack. Uh, some are hybrid cloud by their very nature uh, and, and we, we need to be able to interoperate uh, between those disparate uh, implementations. So um, again, the environmentals often get thrust upon us. We need to be able to operate a cloud or a hybrid cloud uh, and certainly multi-cloud in between and betwixt all of them. And last but not least is this uh, concept of mission advantage. Um, Wyatt, you touched on uh, JADC2 or now what they're calling CJADC2 uh, at the beginning. And what that's really all about is information advantage over a, an adversary or a potential adversary, uh, as well as, and, and that doesn't necessarily have to mean a, a nation state or an actor. It could be everything, including the um, humanitarian mission, having an information ad advantage over Mother Nature herself. And so having a robust data and AI platform uh, is uh, you know, intrinsic and, and, and uh, existential to being able to operate secret and top secret cloud environments. Uh, we made some announcements last week, in fact, about making our Azure OpenAI service uh, available uh, from unclassified all the way through our government cloud environments, all the way up to top secret. And that's a commitment we take very seriously as a company, uh, again, being able to offer uh, all of our commercial capability to our defense customers. Well, and lastly, Derek, I'm curious, uh, can you describe a little bit about what's different about how Microsoft has approached providing classified cloud services to the DOD uh, compared to alternatives? Uh, yeah, I, I think I hit a, a, bit, a bit of this earlier, but it, it's definitely worth a foot stomp here at the end. I mean, what we were really trying to look at uh, as we approach building out our secret and, and secret clouds were uh, first off capability. So having access to a cloud with a commitment to parity with commercial services. Um, also looking at performance, having the most direct path to connecting uh, to our cloud or using our cloud uh, within the classified community. If you have to jump through five hoops uh, to get there or um, the network latency is so bad because you have to go through three hops to use our cloud. That that's not helpful uh, to anybody. So we, we we tried to take lessons learned and and uh, optimize there where we could as well. You know that really matter in this particular community is 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 very very important. 
And then access, just to kind of footstop my earlier point, how do we make the Azure clouds built for secret and top secret workloads accessible to the users that, that are in these uh, you know, classified cloud communities, the potential users of these clouds uh, available through the right combination of connections and different capabilities so that we're really delivering mission value? I, mean, I think a great example there is really the edge computing side of things. Because uh, so much of the classified program space has an operational edge or a hybrid cloud computing requirement. And we've been just really, really serious since the very beginning of having a robust set of capabilities there so that um, the tactical community, for example, and some of the um, operational programs that have, sure, they have an enterprise com- component where they where they build things and plan to build things, et cetera. But then they you know, fly or float or roll and they need cloud out there as well. So, uh, you know, a really good set of capabilities that we've developed, uh, both first party and, uh, you know, just as importantly, if not more so, through our hardware and software OEMs to support both uh, connected and disconnected operations. Well, Derek Strasbauer, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes to share um, some of those essential capabilities as you described for you know, working effectively in the cloud, particularly f- to meet the needs of the Department of Defense. So thank you uh, very much for being with us. Thank you, what? The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back with a new episode again in a few weeks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm your host, Billy Mitchell.